When Dr. Paul Offit was five years old, he was sent to a polio ward to recover from club foot surgery. He spent six weeks in the ward surrounded by young children suffering from polio. My bed was right next to a window that looked down onto the front door of the hospital. I just remember staring out that window waiting for somebody to come in and save me. And I remember that ward. I mean, here were these children who often had no one visiting them. That formative childhood experience put Dr. Offit on the path to becoming one of the most renowned vaccine advocates in the world. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Dr. Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Offit has won many awards and honors and is the co-inventor of a vaccine that is estimated to save hundreds of lives a day. He has published more than 180 papers in medical and scientific journals and is the author of numerous books, including Autism's False Prophets, Bad Science, Risky Medicine, and The Search for a Cure. Offit is a tireless advocate for children, both in the books he writes and his willingness to take on the anti-vaccine coalitions, which has made him the frequent target of intimidation and death threats. Offit currently is a member of a National Institutes of Health-led working group on accelerating vaccine development for COVID-19. This sweeping public-private initiative between federal researchers and 16 pharmaceutical companies is called Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Intervention and Vaccines, or ACTIVE. Dr. Offit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. You had surgery at age five for clubfoot. What is the condition and how is it fixed? Right, so um, it's a condition at, that you're born with. It's congenital. And the way uh, it, it looks is that your feet are sort of turned down and inward, much as a horse's foot would look. And um, so it, it's um, it usually treated simply by casting uh, both feet for the first few months of life. And that usually straightens things out. In my case, um, my father felt that the uh, the foot wasn't um, straight enough when I was five years old, and so he insisted that uh, that something be done. So what my mother did was she called the uh, the, the club foot clinic clinic at Johns Hopkins University because I, I grew up in Baltimore, and she couldn't get an appointment. So what she did then was she she called my uh, grandfather's brother, my great uncle, who was a bookie, sort of Baltimore's frankly most important major bookie meaning he booked bets, not made books. And um, the guy who was the head, the doctor who was the head of the club foot clinic at Hopkins apparently was a gambler and gambled with, uh, you know, through my uh, great uncle. So with that, my great uncle called the, the clinic and was able to get me an appointment within a week. Um, within that, when we saw the, the doctor, the, the doctor said that uh, wh whatever you do, he said to my mother, don't operate on this foot because there was no, frankly, repair for club foot surgery. But my father was insistent and he was able to find through a uh, friend of my grandfather, I, his father, had his son had recently uh, finished an orthopedic residency and he was anxious to do surgery. And so he operated on my foot badly. And as a consequence, uh, I ended up being in this chronic care facility, which was a polio ward, Pernan Children's Hospital uh, in Baltimore, Maryland for six weeks. And did the surgery eventually actually work or did it not? No, it didn't work. I mean, club foot repair surgery was perfected in the mid-1990s, roughly 40 years after I had my surgery. You know, I, I suffered uh, severe so-called osteoarthritis of my foot, uh, right foot, ever since I was a child. So it's been, it's really been painful since then, but I can live with the pain. It's not, it's not like something I can't live with. 
So what was that like being in that polio ward for, I guess, six weeks, right? That's a long time for a young child in a hospital. It was hell. Uh, you know, I, I um, it, it, this was the mid 1950s. It was a polio ward. People were scared of polio. There was there was one visiting hour a week on Sundays from two to three. My mother was pregnant with my brother and had a complication, so she was unable to visit. My father, who traveled uh, often as a, a salesman, um, he um, tried to visit me actually on one of the hours that wasn't permitted, and and from then on he wasn't allowed to visit me. Uh, as a consequence, no one visited me, and you know, it's it's. I just remember. That ward, I, I my bed was right next to a window that looked down onto the front door of the hospital. I just remember staring out that window, waiting for somebody to come in and save me. And I remember that ward. I mean, here were these children who often had no one visiting them. There, there, it's not like, I mean, this was 1955. There weren't any TVs in the ward. There wasn't a play therapist. There weren't sort of animals, you know, pet dogs to sort of, you know, make children feel better. You just laid there for, uh, you know, uh, what seemed like forever. And the nurses were not all that kind, as I recall. And you just stared out that window looking for people to come get you. And, and you know, when I was a medical student at the University of Maryland, we actually rotated through that hospital. And, and I remember that walking into that room, which was no longer a ward. It was just an administrative uh, offices. And but that, you know, that window was still there. And I just remember walking over and looking out that window and looking to the front door and crying. It's like something Charles Dickens would write. No, I think I think the scars of our childhood invariably translate to our passions as an adult. And what did that teach you, do you think, that experience? I think it taught me to care for children. I think I, I think what it taught me was that children are so often sort of vulnerable, alone, and and I, as a consequence, and helpless. And, and I think as a consequence. The, the drive to become a pediatrician, the drive to create uh, work on a vaccine that could save children and help them from suffering, the drive to write all the books that I write, which invariably have as a theme child advocacy, trying to protect children, you know, from sometimes the uh, irresponsible acts of their parents. I, I really do think, as I said before, I just think that the, the scars of your childhood translate to the passions of your adulthood. And that I think that's what happened to me. And your parents uh, get, went kind of against the grain of the medical recommendation at the time. Uh, I guess one could argue they weren't perhaps skeptical enough or, you know, they were convinced by what they believed would be the right thing to do. They were acting in your interest. Uh, did you ever discuss with your parents down the line what that experience was like that you went through and, you know, did they ever regret doing it? Um, I remember... My mother said that when I came home um, after that ordeal, that I um, insisted on staying in their bed, that I was depressed, uh, sort of clinically depressed. And weeks went by before I sort of finally snapped out of it. But um, that, that my mother had told me that. But I, I don't, I mean, they, you know, they did what they thought was right. They were trying to do be the best by me. Um, I just don't think, you know, children were thought of in the same way then. If you ever saw the television show Mad Men, I think the theme of that show, because it really gets so much right, is children were basically ignored, right? I mean, you know, the, you know that they sort of should be seen but not heard. I mean, it was, the way we treat our children today is so different. We so are so much more involved in their lives and, um, and dote on them. I, I just think that wasn't true then. It, yeah. it, was just, it was a different time. I think in Mad Men, you also learned that children were taught to make cocktails for their parents, <laughs> which might be helpful today when we're all cooped up at home, I guess. <laughs> so clearly, the polio ward was an early experience that taught you the human toll of not having vaccines, right? How did that interest in vaccines develop over time and, and got you to where you are today? 
when I was a medical student, there was a, a woman who was head of the uh, division or part of the division of infectious diseases at University of Maryland named Ellen Wald, who also, when I went to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh to do a residency, happened to go with her family at the same time. So she was a big influence on me. I mean, she just made infectious diseases interesting and fun and logical and thoughtful. And um, I, I was drawn to that. So then I did a fellowship in infectious diseases at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And my boss was Stanley Plotkin. And I, what I remember of, of first meeting him is I walked into his office and he was sitting there reading a, a journal called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And what he was looking at is he was looking at the incidence of so-called congenital rubella syndrome um, in the United States and in the world. He, he, um, he was the inventor of that vaccine. So rubella is a virus that when it infects women in the first trimester, causes about 85% of those births to have severe permanent abnormalities of the eye, ear, and heart, so-called congenital rubella syndrome. He um, was looking at, at that to see what the incidence was. He had invented the rubella vaccine the year that had been used uh, for, the, for the previous year. He invented it in 79. I came there in 1980. And it just struck me. Here's a guy whose report card is looking at, at morbidity and mortality weekly report to see the incidence of congenital rubella syndrome. I mean, I had just come off of a residency where I was taking care of one patient at a time. And here he was taking care of entire populations of children. It was a dramatic moment. And it certainly uh, got me interested in the power of vaccines. One of your greatest accomplishments, I guess, you were, are a co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, which is credited with saving hundreds of lives of children every day. So you were kind of able to do what your mentor did. Uh, what is a rotavirus and how did you become involved in its vaccine development? Right, so rotavirus is a virus that primarily infects children between six and 24 months of age. It causes fever, vomiting, and diarrhea and is a common cause of dehydration. In the United States, uh, at the time that we were working on this, it accounted for about 75,000 hospitalizations a year, primarily in children less than two for dehydration, and about uh, 60 to 75 deaths a year. But in the world, rotavirus kills 2,000 children a day, roughly, before there was a vaccine. And I was just fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. Dr. Plotkin obviously had already made a vaccine. He understood what it took to get from bench to bedside. Also very fortunate enough to work with a, a man named Dr. Fred Clark, who was a, a PhD DVM. He was a veterinarian who had extensive work with animal models and, and pathogenesis, meaning how uh, viruses cause disease. And he was just a brilliant, thoughtful mentor. And I just was lucky to be able to be affiliated with those two people so that we could create the strains that became that vaccine. You saw the human impact of the rotavirus, I think, uh, in the case of uh, uh, um, an Appalachian mother that you were telling me about. Yeah, that was that was sort of uh, at, at some level. I always had the image of that uh, mother in my head during the roughly 26 years it took us to create this vaccine. Um, I was a resident at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh when a mother had come into the emergency department at night with a child who clearly was severely dehydrated. The child was about a nine-month-old uh, girl who had been well, perfectly well, up until being infected with rotavirus. The mother was great. She called the, um, the doctor, the, the nurse, the night before, was told to give frequent sips of fluid containing sort of sugar and minerals, which she tried to do. But, you know, it's very hard to rehydrate 
great children who are vomiting. And so by the next morning or the next evening, uh, the child was severely, severely dehydrated. So when, when the child came into the emergency department, we quickly whisked her back into the treatment room and we tried to put an intravenous line into a vein in her arm or leg, but she was so dehydrated that we couldn't find one. So we called the surgeon to come down, the general surgeon to come down and essentially do a so-called cut down in her neck to try and at least get an, a, a line a catheter into a vein in her neck so we could give her the fluids that she so desperately needed. While waiting for him to come down, we basically took a bone marrow needle and sort of bore it into the bone right below her knee um, to try and at least put fluids into her bone marrow in the hopes that it would be resorbed into her circulation and the hopes that it would then prevent what was the impending shock that we were sure was happening. And we tried to do that without success. She, the child went into shock and then uh, her heart stopped beating. And we, we tried desperately to revive her, but couldn't. And so here was a child who two days earlier was perfectly normal, who now was dead from, from shock caused by severe rotavirus disease. And then comes the hardest moment in your life in the world of medicine, which is you now have to walk out of that treatment room into the waiting room and tell this mother whose child was well two days before that she was dead. And it just uh, still gets me that uh, how hard that is to do. And the, the look on her face has never left me. So when you look at your accomplishments, where would you sort of place your co-invention of the rotavirus vaccine in the context of everything else you've done? Well, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I was just really fortunate enough to be part, part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia that created this. I would say that was right number one. I would say number two, interestingly, was uh, the work I did on the, the polio virus vaccine. I, I was asked to be on the advisory committee for immunization practices in um, 1998. I was on that committee for uh, about four, four or five years and was asked to be head of the polio vaccine working group. And, you know, my interest at the time was because I had actually just written a book about the polio vaccine called The Cutter Incident, which was this tragic event associated with uh, the birth of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine. Um, so I, I had a very good sense of the polio vaccine and its weaknesses. And the, the, at the time, we were using the oral polio vaccine, the one that was initially dropped on sugar cubes and put into people's mouths. Then now, at that time, was just sort of squirted into people's mouths with a little uh, plastic vial. But, and that was a great vaccine. It eliminated polio from the Western Hemisphere. But it had a side effect, which was intolerable, which is that that, that vaccine could actually cause polio. It was rare, uh, at roughly one in 2.4 million uh, doses, but it was real. And so, so we, although we eliminated polio from the United States by the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, every year in our country, we would have polio caused by that vaccine. There would be eight to 10 children who would be paralyzed. Permanently, some of them would die because they got that vaccine. And now at the time, there were other countries that had used only Jonas Salk's inactivated vaccine, were able to eliminate polio from their country using that vaccine. So I thought, why don't we switch to that vaccine? So I, I brought actually a guy whose son had, uh, had uh, gotten polio from the polio vaccine, a guy named John Salomon. I brought him onto that committee. And, and for those two years that we tried to move this country away from the oral polio vaccine, which was much cheaper and easier to administer to the inactivated vaccine, I think, I think that was an accomplishment. And, um, and so as a consequence, we don't have any more cases of vaccine-associated paralytic polio, which we had had for, you know, decades. And there hasn't been a single case since the year 2000. So much of your early career was steeped in sort of medicine and science and the invention of vaccines, but something happened to turn you into a, a much more assertive, perhaps aggressive vaccine advocate. And you've kind of gotten involved in the politics of vaccines and the anti-vaccination, taken on the anti-vaccine movement very aggressively. What happened to kind of 
turn you in, in a new direction. Right. Well, I, so I was in the midst of, of you know trying to make this rotavirus vaccine. I think with that, I saw exactly how hard it was to make a vaccine, how hard it was to prove that it was safe and effective. I mean, our our phase three trial, so-called pre-licensure FDA trial, was a prospective placebo-controlled 70,000 child, 11-country, uh, four-year, $350 million study to prove that the vaccine was safe and effective. Um, at the same time, I watched how that I was seeing how hard it was to make a vaccine. I was seeing how easy it was to damn them. I mean, Andrew Wakefield published a paper in 1998 when I first came on to the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices stating that the combination measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. I mean, he, it was all that was, was a, 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 it wasn't a study. It was just a case series of children who got the MMR vaccine and with the, within a month developed signs and symptoms of autism, which was in no sense of proof. All that did was show that the MMR vaccine doesn't prevent autism. It only prevents measles, mumps, and rubella infection. I mean, subsequent to that, 18 studies have been done in, in seven different countries on three different continents involving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children, showing you're no more at risk of getting autism if you got that vaccine than if you didn't. But the media ran with that story. Anti-vaccine groups were, were um, you know, were created because of that story. Our group, the Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices, was asked to consider whether or not we should separate the MMR vaccine into its three separate uh, parts to try and avoid autism because there was a congressman who was on the Appropriations Committee who believed that MMR vaccine caused autism. It was a nightmare. And I just, I, I didn't think that, I, I didn't really see a lot of people standing up in the media scientists especially, saying that here's not only that it doesn't cause, that MMR doesn't cause autism, but here's all the reasons why it doesn't make sense that it would. I didn't see that. And I, I so I started to get in the game, if you will. I wrote a book called Autism's False Profits, uh, Bad Science and Risky Medicine, and uh, it's a search for a cure. And, um, and that was a book where I sort of took on the anti-vaccine movement. I, I tried to pull the curtain back to show Here's who funds these people. Here's how the extent to which they're politically connected, to which they're media savvy, to which they're lawyer backed. And here's what this is really about. Um, this isn't just a group of sort of grassroots movement. This is a sort of many ways a lawyer funded political campaign. And with that, I put an X on my back and became, I think, probably the most hated person by the anti-vaccine movement. And you've, you know, they've criticized you for being a, supposedly in bed with vaccine manufacturers. You know, you've been called a liar, a profiteer, a millionaire vaccine industrialist. How was it when you first started on this path? Was it difficult when you started to read and hear these things? And, and how did you kind of respond to that criticism that you have a vested interest in the outcome of these, the vaccine adoption? Well, I knew that wasn't true. So therefore, I mean, I can live with myself. I mean, we, we were the creators of the vaccine. Um, and when you, when you co-invent a vaccine, we were obviously were the patent holders on the vaccine. But, but you know, me and my two co-inventors, Stanley Plack and, and Fred Clark, were, were the intellectual property of our hospital. Our hospital owned that patent because they owned us. And therefore, they're the ones who, who sold, essentially sold the license to Merck. And then when the, it became a vaccine, they basically sold out to an asset acquisition company. So, I mean, I, everybody accuses me of being sort of in bed with Merck. I have no direct financial connection to Merck at all. Um, it's my hospital that has that because they own the patent. Um, but, you know, the, they sold that asset out a long time ago. Now, I was, uh, as were my two co-inventors, were subject to sort of the tech transfer policies of our hospital. So we did receive, you know, some financial remuneration you know, but that's okay. I, you know, it's not, 
like we created, you know, a better way to freebase cocaine. We, you know, created a vaccine that saves lives. I mean, it was a 26-year effort. To some extent, I was compensated for that effort. I can live with that. Um, it's too bad that they can't. Um, but I don't, I don't make any money and didn't and haven't made any money off of the sale of vaccines since my, our hospital sold that uh, patent, which was, you know, decades ago. So I can live with myself because I know what motivates me. I know why, why I did what I did. And it was all for the benefit of children. I mean, nobody, no scientist, uh, you know, goes into work day after day thinking, boy, if I can just figure out which of these two viral surface proteins evokes neutralizing antibodies, I can be rich. You know, you just are trying to understand the virus that it eventually came to be that we were vaccine inventors was surprising to me. It was, it was nice, but it was never really, uh, you know, the specific goal, we were just trying to understand the virus. And if we became part of what became that vaccine, that was great. So in any case, um, I understand that they are going to target me. And because they don't have the data, they have to attack me personally, right? They have to make ad hominem attacks. Because when I say, look, here's 18 studies that show MMR doesn't cause autism, what they should do is, is, is if they have science, they should show, look, here's, here are excellent scientific studies that show MMR does cause autism, but that doesn't exist. And so therefore, they make ad hominem attacks. I mean, as I've always said again and again, I'm not their problem. The science that shows they're wrong is their problem. And you said you're kind of the most hated person by anti-vaxxers and you have been the subject of death threats. How did that begin to happen and what's that experience been like? I mean, how often and how many threats do you get? Well, it's certainly when that book was published, I would say it was on a daily basis. Um, it's 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 faded more to like you know I would say every week I get some sort of negative thing in, either by email or snail mail or comments on Facebook pages but I, I think that that we're so so it's been a, a variety of things either one just sort of you know just hate mail um, two would be sort of physical inter intimidation I mean there was a, a march once at the CDC a rally um, during an ACIP or Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices meeting where I had to walk through that group I had to walk this you know the CDC and its infinite wisdom um, you know they had policemen there they had like helicopters flying overhead but you still had to walk through this group many of whom held signs with like your face on it with like a slash through it right so that was fun but but when I was walking one guy grabbed me he, he grabbed me by the army, wouldn't let me go. And, you know, I just kept saying, look, sir, you're going to have to let me go. Sir, please let me go. Sir, you're going to have to let me go because you can't do anything other than that. You cannot push him. You cannot touch him. The minute you do that, you know, you're in for a much longer road than you want to be. And so eventually he let go of my arm. And I've had that where people will take their iPhones and put it right up in my face um, while they're trying to film me because they want me to touch them. Because all, if I touch them, all you have to do is touch somebody against their will, and that's battery. And, and so they know that. So you have to, to know that and to sort of be very patient. And, and then I've had death threats. I've had three legitimate death threats. And although death threats are made on the internet every day, according to the FBI, there's thousands of death threats that are made. They don't consider it to be uh, um, a true death threat unless, one, it's made more than once. I'm sad that I actually know these criteria. Two, that it uh, is a specific, meaning I am going to come to your office and shoot you with a gun, not just watch your back. And, uh, and three, that it could be done by someone who they think could do it, meaning a paranoid schizophrenic. And when that happens, the FBI actually gets involved. So my hospital has a very good relationship with the Philadelphia FBI, and um, they coordinate to national organization. They coordinate with other cities. So if, so if I get a death threat, and there was one not too long ago, they then monitor that person. They monitor the person's emails. They monitor their comings and goings. They look to see whether they buy a have bought a weapon that, that could be could kill somebody. They look to see whether they bought a plane ticket to Philadelphia or a train ticket or whatever. So 
Um, your idea, by the way, of civil liberties dramatically changes when um, you're threatened. I mean, you know, you're, my attitude is like, if they've threatened me, please violate their civil liberties. I'm fine with that. Is it worth it? Is it worth taking on this movement, you know, the death threats and the criticism and all of these battles you're taking on? I think it comes with the territory. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, I'm a scientist and I'm most comfortable obviously presenting science in a scientific venue where, where you look at data and you try and analyze data. That's the most fun for me. The minute you cross the line though, the minute I took on this group by trying to, I think, expose so, so, so their funding, expose what their motivations were, how were they getting paid, et cetera. Um, that's politics. And, and with politics comes this, it's ugly, it's dirty, it's mean spirited, it's full of lies. And, um, you know, you're in or you're out. And if you're in, just realize that that's, that's the, what you've signed up for. Even though they're so um, highly politicized now, and you've written a lot about sort of the vested interest and all of that, but I guess early in the days, right, it was probably a movement birthed in sort of the tragedy and sorrow of when kids don't take well to some of these vaccines. Is that kind of what we're dealing with here with autism, that there are some, what's the, what's the issue here for people that don't track this? Why is there this conviction that the vaccines cause autism? Well, because the, the, from the parent's standpoint, my child was fine, they got a vaccine, now they're not fine, could the vaccine have done it? It's a fair question. The good news is it's an answerable question. I mean, so if you wonder whether or not MMR vaccine caused autism, it's not that hard to look back retrospectively and see um, who's gotten this vaccine, who hasn't, make sure that those two groups are alike in terms of their medical background or socioeconomic background or healthcare-seeking behavior. So you can isolate the effect of that one variable, receipt of MMR vaccine. And when that study has been done again and again and again, it shows that it, there is no difference. So um, that was an ill-founded concern, which would, and most people are convinced by that. I mean, I think if you asked uh, a 1,000 people uh, 20, 25 years ago, do you think MMR vaccine or vaccines can cause autism? I think most parents of children with autism would say yes. That's not true anymore. 85% of parents, and this is just a recent study by the Autism Science Foundation, 85% of parents of children with autism do not believe vaccines cause it, but some do. 15% do. They are unconvincible. And no matter how much data you show them, they're unconvincible because they believe that the pharmaceutical industry is, is just controlling everything, controlling the medical establishment, controlling government, controlling the journals that publish these papers. They're conspiracy theorists, and there's no getting around that. So, um, you know, what can I say? I, I think that we, we in the public health or academic community have done a good job at trying to answer these concerns. But the true anti-vaccine activists hold on to a belief much as one holds a religious belief. They believe that vaccines cause hyperactivity and, and autoimmune diseases and autism and diabetes, and multiple sclerosis, and all a variety of things that vaccines don't cause, which is not to say that vaccines don't have problems, including serious problems. One example being polio that was caused by the oral polio vaccine. But uh, that's not really what their concerns are. Their concerns have largely been uh, um, addressed via scientific studies and shown to be ill-founded. Actually, this kind of is a great segue to coronavirus because vaccines now are once more uppermost in, on people's minds, right? When will there be a vaccine for coronavirus? And with rotavirus, it took 26 years. What, what's your uh, prognostication on sort of where we are and what it's going to take to get a vaccine for coronavirus? Right. So the 26-year timeline we had for our vaccine is not abnormal. I mean, typically, you know, timelines are around 20 years for the development of a vaccine, meaning from having the strain to doing all the research and then the research of development. So when, when Dr. Fauci says we, he thinks we can have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, obviously there are going to be steps that are skipped or compressed. 
And so what do I think about this? I, I, think, that, I think there will be a coronavirus vaccine. There's every reason to believe it. First of all, the, the Food and Drug Administration in, in the United States has received more than 120 investigation new drug licenses. There are more than 70 companies throughout the world that want to make this vaccine. BARDA, which is part of uh, Health and Human Services, has put up $2.5 billion, uh, $500 million to each of five companies. Um, the virus is stable. Um, it doesn't mutate in a manner similar to, say, influenza virus. And, um, and we know the protein of interest. The, the protein that sits on the surface of that virus, that spike protein, so-called S protein, um, that's the protein that attaches the virus to cells. So if you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells, then you're going to prevent infection. So that's the protein of interest. Those are all, that's all good news. Um, but I think this is going to be a dramatically compressed timeline. I think what's going to end up happening is that you're going to have companies doing very small prospective placebo-controlled studies that will involve between 1,000 or 6,000 people. That is tenfold less, more than tenfold less than what you normally see in a pre-licensure study. I think it's, these aren't going to be licensed products. I think they're going to be so-called FDA-approved, not FDA-licensed products through the so-called Emergency Use Authorization Act. And I think we're going to learn about the real safety and efficacy of this vaccine after it's already rolled out to the public, when then tens of thousands of people have gotten it and tens of thousands of people won't have gotten it. So you'll see sort of what the safety and efficacy profile really is. So I think this is going to play out in one of two ways. There will be a vaccine. I think there will be a vaccine soon. And I think not a vaccine. I think there's going to be several vaccines or many vaccines used uh, in, in countries throughout the world. And then we'll learn about it. After it's already out there, I think then we'll learn about, learn about it. And it'll play out one of two ways. It'll be uh, remarkably effective, stop this, this, uh, this spread of this, this awful virus. Um, and that is the only way to stop spread. I mean, population immunity will only be achieved by a vaccine. It's not going to be achieved by natural infection because it never is. And um, either the vaccines will be a hero, much as in the movie Contagion, when vaccines were the hero of that movie, or because things have been compressed and pushed quickly, um, there will be a side effect that would be severe that people hadn't anticipated and um, that, um, that could uh, make uh, people question the, whether we had done this the right way. So it, it kind of has that same sort of a, the risk issue, right? The shorter compressed time frame, higher the risk and greater the risk of a backlash. But I guess you have to weigh the odds against people dying. Well, that's exactly right. I, I think, you know, if you're talking about trying to prevent a disease that's killing 2,000 people a day in the United States, so, so the risk-benefit ratio changes. You're willing to take a greater degree of uncertainty about safety or a greater degree of uncertainty about efficacy because you, you are scared to death of dying from this virus. I mean, you know, if the, this virus was killing two people a day in this country, um, you know, you'd be far less willing to accept vagaries about safety or efficacy than you, you would now. Uh, so I think that's it's always true in everything in medicine. It's always a risk-benefit ratio. You know, if you have cancer, you're willing to take a chemotherapy that itself could kill you because you fear dying from the cancer. I think this is similar. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to understand, right? What, how risk-benefit uh, analyses work and, you know, sort of the statistical modeling. But what works is human stories, right? So when you hear stories of people dying, neighbors dying from a vaccine or something, that tends to get big, greater prominence sometimes in people's minds than sort of doing sort of the statistical correlation and trying to figure out the cost-benefit analysis. I think we're terrible at determining risk. I think the greatest risk of getting vaccines, frankly, is driving to the office to get them, if you look just statistically. And I think, um, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're scared of all the wrong things. Um, you know, we should be scared of things like, you know, 
fried foods and you know not uh, not uh, not the things that we're scared of. You know, I just I just think we don't, we, we don't get it. But you're right. I mean, it's the it's the personal stories that are compelling. I mean, how does the New York State lottery get you to buy tickets? for, you know, where the odds of you winning are 14 million to one against, because they say, quote, it can happen to you. And that's, that's good enough. So what I'm curious with all of your expertise in vaccines and viruses, when coronavirus first started to emerge in China, what were your thoughts? When did you start to pay attention to it? Yeah, I didn't, I really didn't think it was going to be as big in this country as it is. I, I clearly was fooled by SARS and MERS, which had been one-year deals. I mean, SARS caused 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. MERS caused about 2,500 cases and 1,000 deaths and were one-year deals, one and off, because they, I mean, and, and you know, SARS-1, the original SARS, was a, was a bad coronavirus. That's what, that was this virus, too. But that's, that was not true. I mean, as we, we very quickly learned in China, 80% of those cases were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, which was not SARS and MERS. I mean, people who had SARS and MERS infections were sick. That's why it was easier to put a sort of moat around them and stop the spread. That wasn't true here. And then um, this virus also is weird. I mean, it has neurological complications. It can cause kidney complications. It causes, you know, the lack of sense of smell and taste. This is not a typical respiratory virus. This is very different than flu. On the other hand, what's weird about, another of the weird things about this virus is it really does have a unique predilection for people who are older and have certain comorbidities like diabetes or type two diabetes or obesity or hypertension, high blood pressure. Um, but it spares the young. It really spares the young, healthy person. That's not true of flu. I mean, flu has killed 160 uh, children this year in the United States, whereas I think this COVID-19, which has killed 60,000 people, I honestly think it's killed fewer than, fewer than 10 children. So it spares the child, interesting. I'm not sure why. Now, you're a member of a working group put together by Dr. Francis Collins. And uh, tell us about this group. I guess it's called ACTIVE. And what's your goal? Well, the goal is to try and facilitate the, the industry who is making this vaccine to find out what they need and how it can be most uh, quickly gotten to them. So, for example, um, what is the critical immunological determinant of protection? If someone, for example, is naturally infected with this virus, uh, can we look in their blood, their serum, and see just what, what kind of antibodies they have? I mean, assuming then that they're going to be at least protected, at least in the short term, what's the nature of those antibodies? So, to, if it, do they neutralize the virus? If so, how, at what titer do they neutralize the virus? That sort of thing. The kinds of things that help them in their development program, realizing it's going to be much compressed. Uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, attention also being paid to potential antiviral therapies, you know, separate from vaccines. Uh, do you have any thoughts on where we are with that? I know there, there are some promising ones, seemingly promising ones that have literally moved the markets in recent days. Uh, where are we with uh, sort of the development of antiviral therapies? Yeah, I mean, so remdesivir, the news came out about a, a clinical trial uh, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health yesterday of, of about a little more than a thousand people who were divided into two groups. Um, one group received remdesivir, the other one received the placebo, which is to say nothing. And then look to see how, what the progression of that was. Now, the primary endpoint on that study was length of illness. And what you found was that uh, those who were not treated with remdesivir had illnesses that lasted about 15 days, whereas those treated with remdesivir had illnesses that lasted for 11 days. Um, so that was a benefit, um, but there was no statistical difference in death. You were just, the, I think there was 11% that died in the placebo group, 8% that died in the, or 8.5% that died in the remdesivir group, which was not statistically significant. 
So um, that's hopeful, but not what you would have really hoped for. I mean, what, what, and there was also a study out of China yesterday showing that people who were severely ill, meaning in the intensive care unit, those who were treated with remdesivir were just as likely to die as those who weren't treated with remdesivir, which is basically what this other study found. So, I mean, it seems to me that the goal of remdesivir is for people who come into the hospital and have, uh, say, an oxygen requirement, can you keep them out of the intensive care unit? Can you keep them from being on a ventilator? And can you keep them out of the morgue? That's the goal of remdesivir, and, and I, I don't see that. I, I don't think that that is what's happening, which tells you that at the time that you're making the diagnosis, by the time they're already in the hospital now getting intravenous remdesivir, um, the, the, the degree to which viral replication is an important part of disease, uh, the disease pathogenesis, the, the process of the disease, is, is not so important. At that point, the, the, the replication, the degree to which the virus reproduces itself, happens early in the illness, but by, as you move later in the illness, it's the immune response that's the critical determinant of disease, not so much viral replication, so therefore an antiviral won't make much difference. So I think if you catch people early, and treat them with remdesivir, I think you have a much better chance of having a, a better outcome than the way we're doing it now, which is after they're already in the hospital. You're already seeing a lot of people uh, rebelling against the shelter-in-place orders. You know, people have congregated in large numbers in certain instances without a vaccine and with people starting to come out to work and to play. I mean, what's the prognosis? Yeah, I think two years from now, we're going to look back on this and see what we should have done and what we shouldn't have done. Um, because there's two parts of this public health disaster. The first is the virus, which is causing suffering and hospitalization and death. The second is the cure. I mean, we are asking people to stay in their house and not go out and work, which means that now more than about 25 million people have applied for uh, unemployment insurance and assume that there are many who haven't applied either because they can't figure it out how to do it or they're having trouble getting through the, the phone or because they, they can't do it because they're here undocumented. I, I, you know, the original projection, I think, is going to be right. I think we're going to lose 20% of the workforce. I think 35 million people are going to be out of work. That, that's going to approach, really, depression level, meaning Great Depression, 1929 levels. I mean, that's disastrous. And with that level, that massive level of unemployment, will come massive joblessness, massive homelessness, and all the things that come with massive homelessness, which is, you know, the food insecurity and and depression and child abuse and domestic violence, which in, are invariant when you have this kind of level of massive homelessness and joblessness. And so um, that's the second part of this. And I, I don't think that's getting the attention it really needs. I think we, we should have been much better at getting out of the house and getting back to work. And that all depended on testing. And we just never had the testing. And I think we're never going to have the testing we need. We should be doing 5 million tests a day, not 200,000. And for that reason, we aren't getting out the way that European countries are, are getting out. Germany is really the model for this. They're knocking on doors, testing people, and getting people out. They also had half the number of deaths per million that we had. We just were bad at this in, in many ways, and it's, it's hard to watch. The, a number of European countries, European countries are doing so much better than we're doing. Um, I do think, you know, when you, we, the population density is everything and the spread within a dense population is everything. So uh, populations that are less dense probably could have, can go back to work more quickly. And it, 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 we just um, are going to look back on this and see things that we could have done better. Uh, there's going to be heroes and villains in this story. I just don't quite think we know who they are yet. Is there any way to overcome this hurdle of testing and actually start to get more tests out and get people to work? 
if we haven't done it now, I just am losing hope we're ever going to do it. It's, the, the, the administration is right when they say there is the capacity for testing. That's true. What the problem is, is that you need a lot of the ancillary stuff for tests, like swabs and viral transport media. And that's what the federal government, through the DPA um, Act, could have really co-opted industry to make that and distribute it. And they never did it. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, the administration spends time telling you about what a wonderful job they're doing, and then they don't provide the tests. And so I think at this point, uh, we can assume we're not going to get them, that what we're going to do is we're going to just start getting out there. Georgia's now getting out there. Parts of Florida, Texas um, are just saying, okay, we're just going back. Iowa, you know, whether you think you should or not, and um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think we're about to do a grand national experiment to see what we should have done and what we shouldn't have done, because we don't have the testing. It's, it's really... Uh, shame. Just looking back at your career and, and looking back at that five-year-old boy looking out the window, you know, waiting for his parents to visit and surrounded by kids who, were, who had polio, looking at your journey, what would you say to that boy about where you are today and your contribution and the world that you're seeing now uh, and, and all this conversation around vaccines? Um, I think that I have served the, the children in that ward well. Uh, those children who were suffering a disease for which only a couple years later there would be a vaccine to prevent it. Those children who were largely felt no doubt abandoned by their parents, um, that, that, um, that things are better, that we live longer than we used to, that vaccines have, have I think, made us have longer and better and healthier and safer lives. And, um, and I think I, I think I, my charge from them, from the memory of them, um, has been at some level fulfilled. Dr. Offit, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Chitra. Paul Offit is a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The recipient of numerous awards and honors, Dr. Offit is the co-inventor of a vaccine that is estimated to save hundreds of lives a day. Dr. Offit is a tireless advocate for children, both in the books he writes and his willingness to take on the anti-vaccine movement. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.